Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Last time, we introduced the full text of Paul Clay's essay on nature study. We intend to continue the exploration on that, but feel the need to pause from our look at history and acknowledge the fact that we live in interesting times. The Bauhaus was never free from the political turbulence of its times, and architecture probably never is. Above and beyond the grand academic arguments of what history is for, there should be unanimous agreement that failure to learn from the past is a failure of historiography. Attention must be periodically tuned to the present if history is to be seen as something more than a poetic entertainment. It was in this same spirit that we released Intermezzo 4 on May 6th, challenging Andrew Sullivan's view on how democracies decline. This week, it is not any single individual we reply to, but the collective expression of a culture whose left hand denies what the right hand is feeling. Donald Trump's America persists, even if he loses the election. A Chicago-born Clinton administration's success would, in great part, be indexed to how well Democrats accept rather than deny that indelible mark. But they will deny it in actions if not with words. It is in the cultural DNA to do so. Immigration is merely a gadfly catalyst. The U.S.'s real cultural conflict is amongst its native-born and goes back centuries. Stubborn Yankee Puritans, lately known as hipsters, who preach veganism as if it weren't the newest millenarian avocation and gentrify inner cities instead of colonizing the West, have never been at ease with the vast swathes of what the Southern and Appalachian tribes call the real America. And Hillary's potential election, in subtle but consequential contrast to her southern husband, would represent twelve continuous years of Yankee rule in the White House, something that not even FDR achieved. Engaged as the continent is in latter-day tribal migrations, often called the big sort, social siloing indicates, 
and the freshly rigid university ideologies confirm that a truly united states is no longer the natural course of affairs. Though unity was never an easy trick for the Federation to perform, it is only under very specific pressures that the curtain is parted and a republic's latent fissures gape. Trump's hair is a more or less polite fiction. So is any nation-state. Painted far above the heads of visitors to the D.C. Capitol Rotunda, what should be an enduring symbol of unity, is instead a fossilized recall of the near collapse of the Union. It is portrayed in a way that should remind us not only of how the very divisions that Trump is too quickly blamed for far predate him, but of how national terminus in a sclerotic, conflict-ridden principate is worse than inevitable. It is avoidable, but yearned for. As that choice between stern reform and apathetic surrender is determined by the sum total of individual sentiment, in other words, by culture, it is impossible for the current or indeed any election to answer such a question. It is, if anything, noteworthy that the Republic has persisted as long as it has. Cultural yearning for a despot is as old as King Log, and the USA has never been immune to it. Though Washington earnestly played at Cincinnatus by refusing kingship following the revolution, 66 years after his death, the apotheosis of George Washington was installed at Capitol Hill, with a Greco-Italian court painter hired for the job. In that allegory within the rotunda, which was completed while the Civil War raged, Washington as Pater Patriae is deified, ascendant to heaven, draped in purple. This is not the iconography of a people that wishes to preserve self government. Already indulging the splendor of empire, liberty to Washington's right is matched by Victoria on his left. Thirteen maidens representing the colonies surround him, but several have their backs turned. 
allegedly alluding to the rebel states. And there is our signpost. These two qualities together, pining for a princeps, combined with latent socio-political divisions, fuel the underlying national illness. Trump is merely the newest and healthiest parasite to feed on and enable the ailing host. If numb repetition of the news cycle does not deaden the senses, this national transmutation can remain shocking to observe day to day. But stepping back, can anyone honestly call it surprising? Stepping literally back outside the D.C. rotunda yields a view of the capital's exterior and all the Roman strivings the city's buildings entail. When the Old Republic was, to an extent, emulated in 1789, the U.S. culture, as well as the Constitution, had consciously taken on the benefits and risks of Roman legacy. External plunder with genocide, grudging expansion of enfranchisement preceding slave wars. The Soviets were the whetstone of our greatness. Analogy is never a mirror, but this match is strikingly instructive and has been to a considerable degree self-fulfilling. Yet, the nation has also had its share of soothsayers and Cassandras, several architects, chief among them. Three dissenting characters who pushed against the Romanization of the U.S. stand out. H. H. Richardson, Louis Sullivan, and Frank Lloyd Wright. Beyond how their buildings looked, these men, and Wright especially, offered an alternative social and civic model, a different path for nationhood. For what it's worth, the most forceful manifestations of anti-imperial energy amongst these three came from the German and Celtic roots of Sullivan and Wright, respectively. If there is any vital energy now, it is, like the barbarian interlocutors, counter-imperial and non-centralized, both among the DIY left and the survivalist right. The entire mainstream by contrast, wants preservation and reaction. 
a signal quality in the states now is exhaustion. And it goes much deeper than world-leading worker productivity juxtaposed to increasing income inequality. The very key by which those bonds could be loosed, a shared imagination, has become atrophied. We have no idea what the condition or even definition of the so-called American dream is. But the ability to collectively pursue an imagined civic future is gone. Moon landings, transcontinental railroads, a Hoover Dam, down to the humble nobility of a Carnegie library. Even if the desire remains, the strength to achieve the likes of them is gone. Can we do no better for a 9-11 memorial than a hole in the ground? We already nearly believe that giants built the aqueducts. Compared to our current cultural abilities, they were giants indeed. In a radically recent political development, both Sides of the presidential campaign call for returns to the past. One side wants Nixon's law and order. The other calls for Johnson's great society. Thus, across mainstream party lines, the true division of populares contra optimates emerges. So where does this leave us? Just as the green hue of a square becomes richer and more vibrant within a red border than on a white field, the word decline is much more fertile even optimistic, when held against collapse.